Introducing the Two-Way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the Two-Way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the Two-Way for yourself at newbalance.com. And just like that, we're back. Another edition of the Late Kick Extra podcast. I'm Josh Pate. Email joshpate706 at gmail.com. Twitter at Late Kick Josh. Happy, happy, happy to have you with me this morning. I don't know where you may be listening to me. You could be listening to me in a place where it's 23 degrees and snow is blowing sideways right now. I just got to tell you, there's something about waking up in mid-November in Nashville and knowing it's going to be about 68 degrees and sunny today. And then tomorrow, Friday, it's going to be like 70 and sunny. Now, we may only get like three hours of that sun. More on that in just a second. But it's very exciting because you don't expect it. So that's a nice little bonus. The more on that in the second part, I am not used to living in the easternmost part of a time zone yet. I grew up in Columbus, Georgia, which is right on the Chattahoochee River, which is also the line of demarcation for the eastern time zone meeting the central time zone. So the further west you are, obviously, in a time zone, you maximize the amount of sunlight you get in the afternoon on any given day. Well, now I'm in Nashville, which is in central time, but it's kind of the easternmost portion of a time zone. So I went to a place now where the sun sets at like 4 o'clock in the afternoon. It gets dark here at about 4.15, and we haven't even reached December 21st, which I believe is the shortest day of the year, sunlight-wise, so um, not used to it yet, but in the meantime, it's going to be nice today. And it's going to be nice this morning as I'm recording this because I got some really good Q&A from you guys. That's the format here as I remind you or I try and remind you every week. Sometimes I fail on that promise. You submit the questions. I answer the questions. We all try and have a generally good time and put something together for you to listen to on your ride to work or your ride home or you guys a lot of you out there do what I would do, and that's just popping the earbud in and listening during work hours. That's the only way I used to make time pass by at the fabric warehouse is sneaking the radio around and listening to ESPN radio all day at the time. That's what I used to listen to. So I get it. And if I could, I would make these about eight hours long. But in the meantime, I do think we have some good things to talk about here this morning. And it's a much better slate by all available metrics this weekend on the college football schedule than we had last weekend. Another reminder, I keep putting it out there and we keep getting submissions. If you're looking to get into this field, whether it be sports media or anchoring, I, I've done both of those in the past few years, believe me, or you want to crank up your own YouTube channel, done that too, podcasting, done that at this point a couple of times. If you're looking to get in, you just don't quite know where you fit, but you think you have the ability, you think you have the talent, you got the passion, just trying to kind of find your way and you don't know where to start. Well, I'm doing one-on-one -on -one Zoom consultations with folks who fit that description. And so if that's you, or here's what's also been happening. If you're a parent who listens to this and you got a kid who fits that description, hit me up, joshpate706 at gmail.com or on Twitter at LateKickJosh. Let's dive into our batch of questions this morning. I'm going to start off with Andrew. He actually submitted a couple of good ones. First question. How do you think recruiting will be impacted by the dead period being pushed to April? I believe that's correct. 
And do you expect to see a lot of recruits signing in December? Well, let's answer this backwards. So first things first, yes, I expect a lot of kids to be signing in December. We're actually having meetings right now, getting ready for our big early signing day show. I believe that's on December 16th. The structure this year, by the way, is weird, very weird. So I want to go ahead and brace you for it now. Normally, even in the early signing period era, which is still relatively new, what you're used to doing is you're used to getting through conference championship weekend, and then you got, I think, one weekend in between, then you'll have the early signing date, about the time that the early bowl games are happening. Or your team, if you're in a big bowl game, about the time you guys have started bowl practices, that's when the early signing period would happen. Well, now, since the regular season schedule was thrown into chaos this year, and therefore the postseason schedule was adjusted back, have you guys taken notice of what's about to happen? Let me, let me lay it out for you if you haven't taken notice. The SEC championship game, among other conference championship games, is on December 19th. That's a Saturday, obviously. Three days prior, on December 16th, is the early signing date. So let's translate that. Alabama, Florida, let's say they're playing in the SEC title game. They are taking time in the middle of that week to put the full focus that you normally would on the early signing date and locking kids up and all the stress and all the drama that comes along with that signing date. That's happening just like it normally would, except it's going to happen in a way it never has before because you're going to be in the middle of a prep week for the SEC title game. So just brace yourselves for that. And if you're a fan of those programs, a lot of emotion that you're going to have to invest that week, a lot of drama. And if that's not enough, it's 10 days before Christmas. So you may have shopping to do that day as well. It's just going to be a lot on your plate. It's a blessing to have it all on your plate. You'd never knock any of it off. You know, you got five stars you're battling for. That's wonderful. You got an SEC title game you're battling in. That's great. Hey, you got money to shop for Christmas. That's wonderful too. But it could still be a stressful time of year. So yes, I do believe kids are going to be signing. And as I was saying, we're getting ready for our big show. I think at last check, it's going to be about oh, 44 hours worth of coverage that day, which mathematically is impossible, but I still think we're going to somehow try and fit it in. As for whether it's going to be crazy or not, yes, it's going to be crazy. But back in April, you mentioned April, back in April, when all this stuff was first happening, remember we talked about on this very podcast multiple times how I had an expectation, as did many within this industry, of a wave of decommitments that were going to come once everything opened back up. And by open back up, I mean official visits. Back in April, May, June, it was assumed, all right, once this alleviates a little bit, by the time the football season gets here, kids will be able to go take their visits. At that time, schools like Tennessee were surging in the recruiting rankings, and they had a lot of kids, not just Tennessee, a lot of programs had a lot of kids committed who had never even visited campus, which was unsustainable. Of course, that was not going to last. And the thought was, well, once things open up, then kids will get back out on the road and coaches will get back out on the road. And, you know, it'll calibrate the system, for lack of a better term. And it'll look, it'll look normal. And we'll have a lot of decommitments because kids won't, you know, find out that where they committed is actually where they want to be, blah, blah, blah. Well, that never happened. Things never opened back up. So we're still sitting here with a situation wherein a lot of kids are committed to a program and may even be getting ready to sign with a program that they've never visited. They've visited virtually. They've had virtual Zoom visits, but they've never set physical foot on campus. They've never walked through the halls of the dorm that they may be living in. They've never met the the dean of the college that their major will be in. They've never walked the halls 
of classrooms. They've never been in one physically. They've never seen all the things you'd normally see. So that's not going to stop them from signing. I don't think that's what's going to happen. What's going to happen is you're going to have a wave, I think, of transfers as a result of this coming in the next year or two that really will be unlike anything the sport's ever seen because keep in mind what that's coinciding with. That's also coinciding with the transfer portal opening up and the ability for the one-time transfers without penalty, essentially, to open up. So you have all that, and you have an environment where a lot of kids are on a campus that they otherwise, in some years, would not have stayed with, that would not have stayed committed to if things were, again, normal. So I don't think on the front end, stuff's going to change all that much. I don't think the early signing date looks much different. I think the year to two-year period for this particular class after the signing date, that's where things may be thrown for a loop just a little bit. Andrew also had another question here. Do you think Will Muschamp is going to go join the Nick Saban Wounded Coaches Department down there in Tuscaloosa and become an analyst somewhere, or do you see him becoming a defensive coordinator somewhere? Any chance Tennessee could pick him up? Well, I think there's a chance everything you just mentioned could happen. Now, I asked around, and not that this is definitive, but there's no immediate thought that Muschamp will go to Alabama a la Butch Jones or Mike Stoops or any of a number of head coaches Nick Saban has stashed away down there in various cubby holes at Alabama. There's no immediate thought that's going to happen. That doesn't mean it couldn't happen. Um, I, I don't know to this point if even Will Muschamp is you know, made up his mind about what his immediate future holds. Maybe he has. He just hasn't called me and said, all right, I got something official to tell you. But the defensive coordinator route, you know, that's the one if obviously if he got back in coaching fairly immediately, that's the one that you would think he may take. What you don't know is how his buyout is structured relative to future employment. Um, I guess I could look that up, but we're in the middle of recording right now and I don't already have it pulled up in front of me. A lot of times what you'll find is when guys are taking a big buyout, they'll go do exactly what you just mentioned. They'll go do what Butch Jones is doing right now at Alabama, where he's making somewhere between 30 and 40 K a year, which is essentially pro bono work in the coaching world, but he's doing it because he's getting paid a buyout from Tennessee still to this day, getting paid a buyout. So Muschamp could be in line to do something like that. He could be in line to, if he wants to coach immediately, go be a defensive coordinator. He would be in high demand. You mentioned Tennessee there. I mean, I, I know a lot of people immediately thought about LSU and the situation that it's all but an inevitability they'll find themselves in after this year, needing a new defensive coordinator, paying one over $2 million per year at the moment. You want to know the travesty out there. Everyone's all been out of shape about the travesty that is Will Muschamp's buyout. And I understand the conversation there, but that's not the road I'm going down this morning. The real travesty to me, the money Bo Pelini's been paid so far this year. I mean, that was the assumption down there. They had a sure thing. And it's it's been it's surely been something this year. LSU's defense has surely been something. I don't know that a good value play is what it's been worth, but it's it's been something down there. So I could see him moving a number of places, but you did not mention the path that I hope he takes. I hope Will Muschamp goes the broadcast route for a little while. I hope he gets in front of a camera. I uh, said this on Twitter the other day, and I believe this. The, the stuff that you hear about Will Muschamp behind the scenes, the stuff that you hear other coaches tell you, the stuff that you hear folks who know him and have dealt with him a lot in off-the-record situations tell you, is that he's one of the most colorful, likable folks that you'll ever meet. But yet, if you've only seen him on TV, then you've only seen a guy with the perpetual look of someone who just dropped something on their toe. 
That's the only time I ever exhibit the characteristics that Will Muschamp does on the sideline frequently. And that's not him, and that's not who – well, that is that is him in a game. It is not who he probably is just walking down the street on a Tuesday afternoon. And so if you got him in a studio, I'm of the opinion that the best path for Will Muschamp to rehab and repair his image and enhance his stock again is by staying off a football field. Think about what Mac Brown did. Mac Brown, different circumstances I know, but Mac Brown had things wash out eventually at Texas. He took a while away from the game. And he sat in a studio. But do you remember after he was in a studio a couple of years? Now, everyone knew Mac Brown was likable, but he further enhanced his image and he further reiterated that concept to the world. You sound like a genius. If you're a real coach and you're on TV, even the very best studio analysts in the world don't hold a candle to what you're able to do in terms of football talk, in terms of diagramming, in terms of explaining to the lay public what's happening from an X's and O's concept or an organizational and structural concept, how you run a program, how you put together a recruiting plan, how you handle putting a staff together. It makes you sound brilliant because folks in the general public aren't used to having someone lay it out to them that thoroughly. And then you mix in a little comedy and some funny anecdotes and some humor and some relatability. And all of a sudden, people love you. And everyone loves you. And no one's calling for you to get hired a year from then. But if you spend a couple of years doing that, then all of a sudden jobs start coming open and people start saying, hey, what about Will Muschamp? It's the same way they did it with Mac Brown. No one was looking to hire Mac Brown as soon as he got fired from Texas. No one was looking to, nor were they looking to do it the year after. But then slowly he started to relate to you on TV and you got to know him and he became sort of a friend that you listened to on Saturday afternoon. And he did, he kind of did what he needed to do to build back his equity, but he didn't do it on a football field. He did it in media. Now, all the while he was maintaining and even enhancing his network of contacts. He stayed in touch with folks behind the scenes. He constantly visited other programs. So he didn't let the game conceptually pass him by. And then he was ready to re-enter the world when the North Carolina job came open and probably had an offer or two that he turned down before that. If Muschamp doesn't go the D.C. route, if he wants to remain a head coach and doesn't want to go down several rungs on the college football ladder in order to achieve that, if I were him, I'd go sit in a TV studio and I'd enhance my equity and my image that way and I'd rehabilitate things that way. And in the meantime, you expose yourself to a new world you continue to make money because that's what that's what worries me the most about Will, that he'll run out of money. That's really what worries me the most. The guy's only going to have about a quarter million dollars a month coming in from his buyout. So, you know, I mean, whomst among us would be able to survive on just a quarter million dollars a year? Excuse me, year. <laughs> yeah, that'd be, that'd be tough, man. That's like trying to find two quarters to rub together. You're only making a quarter mil a year. Well, he's making it a month in his buyout. Now, I'm joking because if you listened to the podcast the other day, you heard me go down the road of, I couldn't really care less if he's making $400 trillion in his buyout. I would care about that. We could take care of a lot of issues with that. But the principle was, if you're a competitor, no amount of money fills the void that failure leaves inside you. It doesn't alleviate it. And a lot of folks who think that way probably don't have a competitive bone in their bodies. Therefore, they can't grasp that concept. I'd, I'd love to fail for that much money. Well, you'll never be able to fail for that much money. No one's ever going to give you a job, the value of which demands that you have a buyout in your contract. If we want to debate buyouts and whether it ever should have been in this contract, that is a valid discussion, friends, a very valid discussion. 
And I, I think that there is a very disproportionate balance currently in the acumen and backbone at the negotiating table on the sides of the coach versus the side of the table where you find the athletic director and the university. But you know what? I don't think they have all that much motivation to be prudent in their negotiations because no one ever gets told no. Think about this. We're in the middle of a pandemic right now. And at South Carolina, they just found a way to pony up enough money to not only buy out an entire staff and had paid for that staff to begin with and now buying that staff out. And they're going to pony up the money to hire another staff. And that's in the worst of times. So if you're in a negotiation setting and an agent is taking you to the cleaners, what consequence do you really pay? If you know the money's always going to be there, it's no different than the mess we have right now with student loans in America. Hey, you know, I owe student loans too. You know who I wish got a lot more flack? The universities that felt free to keep jacking up tuition rates because they knew the money was going to be there because they knew the money really wasn't coming out of my pocket. I had the federal government subsidizing me, and so, oh, I didn't really care. I got to pay $2,100 for this class or $2,800. Oh, I'll pay it. <laughs> it'll, it'll work itself out down the road. Hasn't worked itself out yet. But the point is, the universities had no real motivation to throttle back tuition rates, just like schools when they're negotiating with a head coach and an agent. is just taking them to the absolute cleaners. Hey, we want an increased buyout for a guy that there's virtually no market for right now. Okay, why not? Sign it. Yeah, that's how negotiations work right now. It's like printing money. It's like fishing with absolute dynamite. I know we're in the middle of a football season. Moving on here. Transition. Let's decompress. Let's move on. I know we're in the middle of a college football season here, but everyone seems to want to talk about the coaching search, including at places where you have a head coach currently. But as I say, every single week, twice a week, when we start this particular podcast, it is your show. I go wherever you want to go. And in just a second, you're going to take me down a road of trying to fill a job that's not available. But it's your show. You make the call, captains, right after this. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And we're back. It's been a while. Actually, there is no gap. I'm recording this and they throw the ad in, so I just take a breath and then keep going. Maybe drop a little joke in there for Jordan while he edits it and he has to cut that out or else we're all going to get fired. But here's the question that I was alluding to. And believe it or not, a few of you asked this in some shape, form, or fashion over the last two weeks. So let's hit it here. Is Michigan a legitimate program to take Matt Campbell from Iowa State? Jerks, why don't you leave my coach alone? How about that? Continue. I know that he said he would love that job when he was at Toledo. But five years ago is a huge difference in two programs. 
All Matt Campbell needs to keep is winning seven to eight games a year, and he'll have statues of him at every entrance to Jack Trice Stadium in a couple of years. I know Campbell wants our Cyclones. Oh, thank you, Ryan. All right, well, I take back the jerk comment. We continue. I know he wants our Cyclones, apropos, to win a conference title or a national title, but will the constant state of difficulty at Iowa State push him to a different job? I guess it can be simplified into, is Matt Campbell a Bill Snyder type, or can we expect him to move on soon? All right, well, let's unpack this. A Bill Snyder type means someone who, in his case, stayed at Kansas State for a long time, and then left and then came back. It's like he retired. Stadium's named after me. I'm good to go. And then he leaves it in the hands of, I think, Ron Prince? Was that the coach? I think it was Ron Prince. Anyway, things started to go sideways. So it's like when you let the 14-year-old drive around the parking lot and you finally let go of the wheel and they just immediately go into hairpin turn mode and you have to grab the wheel again. That's what Bill Snyder did. So he resurrected a program twice. And um, is that what Matt Campbell does? Is he just content to stay at Iowa State? No, I don't think that's going to be him long term. I don't think he's going to be hashtag our coach forever at Iowa State. You are right about the statues. I'd make one of him now just because I'm big into statues and we need a couple more at Iowa State. I think he would take the Michigan job if it were offered. I strongly think that. Folks in the coaching world think that. Folks at Michigan think that. I think folks at Iowa State think that. Is he going to be offered it? That's the assumption that a lot of people are making that I'm not making. Because to be offered that job, by default, it has to be open. And it's not open right now. Jim Harbaugh's still there. I don't, I'm just not convinced it's going to come open. I got to be flat honest with you. I don't know that it's going to come open. That may be a shock to some of you in the South who watch what's happening at Michigan and you think to yourself, rightfully so, accurately so, that would never fly at my program. I don't care what goodwill he had built up in the community. I don't care what goodwill he had built up with prior records. You're not going to let the program be lifeless like this because the rest of the sport's passing us by and we can't let the gap grow further between ourselves and our rivals, in that case, Ohio State. But it is the case at Michigan, and I don't sense any urgency or immediacy in the need to fire him. I don't sense it. Maybe at the end of the year, they mutually agree to something. But outside of that, his contract goes through 2021. As for now, I don't think they're going to make a move. That could always change. But if they did make a move, yes, I think Matt Campbell would go to Michigan in a heartbeat. All right, let's go to Tyler up next. Tyler asks, I just read where JT Daniels is starting for Georgia Saturday against Mississippi State. What are your expectations and what should my expectations be for him? I think they should be tempered, Tyler. That's what my expectation is, very tempered. There is this belief out there, it's this conspiracy theory that Kirby Smart wants to doom his own program and therefore he's known all the while that JT Daniels is the best quarterback for the job, but for whatever reason he has benched him. Maybe JT Daniels' dad stole Kirby's lunch money once upon a time. I don't know what the theory would be, but for whatever reason, even though JT's been the best guy for the job all along, Kirby hasn't played him. Now, you can tell by my sarcastic tone, I think that's pretty foolish. There have been reasons why the guy who is starting has started at every turn. And just as there's a reason now why they feel comfortable putting JT Daniels on the field, talking to some people around the program, and I'm going to state this as plainly as I can, I think the quarterback situation has been misunderstood publicly from the beginning of the season, even before the beginning of the season. Maybe in the offseason, when there's no consequence anymore, the truth, full truth and nothing but the truth will come out about why things have gone down the way they've gone down. I think there's been a lot of misunderstanding there, and maybe up until this point continues to be misunderstanding. 
But you asked about JT Daniels Saturday. JT Daniels Saturday, if you did miss it, we expect him to get the start. And we expected him to get the start last week, and the game got postponed. So now I expect him to get the start Saturday. What to expect? Well, here's what I don't expect. I don't expect Georgia throwing the ball 45 times. Don't expect that. I do expect that they'll be in an environment that's very conducive to doing what they want to offensively. Not just because they're playing Mississippi State. There is a roster situation with Mississippi State that is beyond essentially anything I've ever seen. You know, right now we're in obviously the COVID year where you have to have, I think the number is 53 scholarship players, and you got to have a certain number at a certain position, and I think it's a few different position groups. You have to have certain minimum numbers met, and you have to have 53 on the roster. I think it's something like that. Anyway, Mississippi State is at 54 scholarship players available Saturday. And so you may be thinking, oh, okay, so like COVID and contact tracing has them down near the bare minimum. No, there is no COVID. There is no contact tracing that we know of going on currently with the Mississippi State program. I'm telling you, at full speed, health-wise, they are sitting at 54 scholarship players available. Full speed from a COVID standpoint. They got some guys out. They got some guys injured. They had a ton of opt-outs. Guys walk away. I don't know that they already weren't operating a little bit below capacity scholarship-wise even before all that. They're down to 54 players. 50, it's, that's, that's tough. Let's just say that's tough. But as of this morning, they do still plan on playing that game. So I think that even if they had, you know, 65 players, Georgia's favored by over three touchdowns for a reason. Right now, I think that line's at 25 and a half or so. Haven't checked it this morning. So Georgia is going to probably be in a situation where they can control the game. You know, I don't foresee them having to play catch up at any point or anything like that. I don't foresee this being a close game, third and fourth quarter. So that's a luxury. And they've had a week off. Uh, involuntarily, but a week off. So I think whatever they're going to do, they got a really nice plan in place that, you know, they've been able to, to sketch a lot of this stuff out. They've been able to game plan. And I think they're going to put him, him being JT Daniels in an environment, very conducive for success. I think a lot will be answered Saturday. I think a lot of folks will watch this game Saturday, myself included. It's not like I've had access to practice and we'll get to see Daniels in a Georgia uniform for the first time actually playing. And um, I don't think that you're going to watch him Saturday and just say, wow, you know, like the first time you ever saw Tua Tungavailoa. You said, whoa, like it was mop-up duty and whatnot, but you still said, boy, that guy's different. I don't know that we're going to watch JT Daniels Saturday and think that. In fact, I don't know that anyone's going to watch that game, even the most pessimistic among you. I don't know that any of you are going to watch that game, watch JT Daniels' performance, and think to yourself, had we had this earlier in the year, we'd be undefeated right now. Like, we probably beat Alabama with this, or we probably beat Florida with this. I could be wrong about that. He has the arm talent. I think you may see flashes of arm talent, but I don't know that you're going to watch a product that you would say, that right there at quarterback all year, if we got that level of production, hey, man, that would make us a an overwhelming favorite to win the East, and we'd be right there in the college football playoff conversation. Now, having said that, as I said, I've been wrong before. If I'm wrong about that, though, I don't think we need to even venture down the hypothetical road of what Saturday night's going to be like on a Georgia message board over on the junkyard on Dogs 24-7. If Daniels went out and lit it up and it was 34-3 to at the half and he had 295 passing yards and three touchdowns, I shudder to think, shudder, shudder, shudder to think what the conversation's going to be like. Because I know some of you. I'm from Georgia. I'm, I'm headed down there this weekend after we do our Sunday night show. I know some of you. And as soon as I... Watch JT Daniels 
have any kind of success on the field Saturday, I know what's coming. I might as well just keep my iPhone charged and plugged in all day. Because if they start moving the ball successfully, I know what's going to happen. I know you all too well. I know you. All right, let's move on here. Got a David Shaw question in the inbox this morning from our good old buddy Irish Politico. He said, now that Stanford is 0-2, do you think we hear more talk about David Shaw to the NFL? I It wouldn't be the most shocking thing in the world, but here's the whole deal with the David Shaw NFL conversation. This is, again, the head coach at Stanford, the, for those unfamiliar. And there are those who are unfamiliar with the head coach at Stanford, believe it or not. There's always been talk about that. But it's largely been talk, at least from my perspective, amongst fans and media. I've never heard David Shaw say, hey, the NFL is eventually where I'm headed. It's just kind of been this, this uh, broadly held to widely held assumption that, oh, one day David Shaw, man, his next job is going to be an NFL job. I understand, um, the, I understand the perspective. I understand the rationale behind it. I don't know about the legitimacy of it. So my answer, in short, is no. I don't necessarily think that Stanford's 0-2 start is indication that David Shaw, one foot out the door, eventually he's going to be out of here. By the way, you got to have a job offer to take it. And to this point, to my knowledge, there isn't a job offer on the table. I think there probably would be. David Shaw is a guy who's very widely respected inside the coaching industry. But I'm looking at Stanford's records right now. Capture in your head, what is your perspective of Stanford football? And your perspective, as far as I can tell of Stanford football, is most folks think they've fallen off drastically. Well, think about where they've fallen off to. Where have they fallen? They've just fallen back down to what they always were historically. Because right now, I'm looking at Harbaugh leaving there after the 2010 season. So in 2011, that's when Shaw took over. Here are their win totals from 2011 to now. 11, 12, 11, 8, 12, 10, 9, 9, and then last year was the four and eight year, and they've started off very poorly right now. You want me to blow your mind for a second? Because think about how unacceptable that feels. And think about how much of a lost cause your program feels like these days if you're putting up a four and eight season, and then you back it up with an 0 and 2 start. And even before the four and eight season, well, you, you had to win a bowl game to even get nine wins. So there's certainly a downward trend there. Well, yeah, a very short term downward trend. You want me to blow your mind, though, and tell you how perception about coaching realities has changed? I'm going I'm to kind of read you a blind resume here of a coach. I'm not going to tell you who it is, but I'm just going to tell you the win total and the result of that year. And you spot the downward trend. You tell me where it's past the point of no return. So there is a season here that we're just going to start in a national championship year. So 11 wins and a national title. 10 wins. 9 wins. 10 wins. National title. Nine wins next year. Next year after that, 11 wins. National title, eight wins, eight wins, six wins, six wins. All right, let's pause there. I think we can pretty well tell where the precipitous drop-off was in that coach's resume. So we had a nice run, three national titles, but now we've got four years in a row. Think about this, four years in a row. Eight wins, eight wins, six wins, six wins. I mean, it's time to move on at that point, right? Burnout has set in. And we've just got to we just got to make that uncomfortable decision to part ways. And you delivered unprecedented results to us. Well, this school did not do that. This school continued to sojourn on with said coach. Would you like to know how it turned out, friends? So we got eight wins, eight wins, six wins, six wins. They stick with him. 
Here's how the next few years went. Keep in mind, we're coming off three national titles, but then four years in a row of eight, eight, six, and six, respectively. They stick with him. Following year, 11 wins, 10 wins, 11 wins, national title, 11 wins, 11 wins, 9 wins, 11 wins, 11 wins, 12 wins, national title, 10 wins. We're talking about Paul Bryant. Oh, I probably left out a national title there in 78, by the way. So he got to a point, no one remembers this, in the late 60s, Bryant got to a point after he'd won three national titles at Alabama where they were down. This this part of the story is left out of the legacy of Bryant. They had four years in a row, including two years there at the end of the 60s. Maybe he was distracted by the space race. I don't know. But they were barely above 500 a couple of years in a row. That is death for a coach these days. But they stick with him in Alabama, and he goes on a run in the 70s, the likes of which the sport may never see again. I think they lost three conference games the entire decade. It's some absurd number like that. They won a title in 73, 78, 79, and so they stuck with him. Now, I don't necessarily know that that's going to happen at Stanford, but what I'm saying is, think about the perception right now of David Shaw. Oh, he's lost it out there. Yeah, he had a nice little run, but I mean, they're not going to get that back. You never know. You never know what having patience and sticking with a guy, especially one that's proven he can do it already. You never know what that could bring you. I know what we're bringing you tonight. We're bringing you Late Kick Live. We got a Thursday night show. It's always pretty fun because we got the predictions. We got the hay in the barn in terms of the predictions, but yet we still got a ton to talk about. Our best bets will be wrapped up tonight. Hopefully had a nice start last night with Northern Illinois. Our best bets, by the way, have hit five weeks in a row. I am no mathematician, but that seems like a streak to me. So we're going to continue to deliver you our other batch of best bets tonight. So tune in for that. Subscribe to the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel if you haven't already. And give us a five-star review on the podcast. We're trying to get to a 1,000 five-star reviews. So keep that train chugging along. And we appreciate you. And I appreciate you wherever you're listening. So for Jordan on the editing side of this here podcast, I'm Josh Pate. Have a great day. God bless. And I'll see you later tonight. You can now relive the best moments of the UEFA Champions League 24-7. The UEFA Champions League channel is a new 24-hour streaming channel serving non-stop goals, highlights, and full match replays from the world's most prestigious club competition. Reminisce on your favorite moments, legendary players, and brilliant goals with the UEFA Champions League channel, streaming around the clock on Pluto TV and the CBS Sports app.